Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes. If you're coming in through those means, I appreciate it. If you're watching on YouTube, please click the subscribe button before you forget. And also do not forget to click that bell there next to the subscribe button for continue notifications. That's how you see when I drop new content here on the YouTube channel. You can also get the podcast on anchor.fm. That's the host site for the podcast. You can find it on the website, thebaptistbroadcast.com. And you can also find writings, certain things that I do on the newsletter. I've mentioned that before, joshsummer.substack.com. That's subscription-based. You can have a free subscription or a paid subscription, That uh, which, which subscription funds go to, you know, obviously helping to produce more content like this. Uh, have a pretty important show today and uh, kind of dropping it here on your screens in your homes uh, as kind of a Christmas present, a little bit, a little bit of a holiday gift here. Um, want to interact with a recent dividing line that Dr. James White did, and I'm not going to interact with the whole video. It's not a response to the video. All right, I want to be very clear about that. I'm not responding to everything he said. He brought up the names of a lot of men. He brought up, you know, a lot of things that we could talk about in in that dividing line, in that in that recent dividing line, and and I'm not saying that that those things would 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 not be useful to to bring up at some point. But uh, what I want to do here is I want to focus on the more uh, technical and factual side of the discussion. Uh, there is a lot of emotional baggage being brought into the to the to the discussion at large. Um, I think Dr. White is. Um, Upset, maybe. Uh, I I don't want to, you know, I don't want to speak for him. Um, but I I can tell that there's some uh, uh, there's some heartache there because the term heterodoxy, unorthodoxy, even heresy, has been applied to the conversation and has been applied to certain doctrines that he believes, or one doctrine in particular that he believes, or that he has articulated in the past concerning God and you know, three centers of consciousness and also this kind of deviation from the doctrine of divine simplicity. Again, he's, he's really not committed to a deviation from the doctrine of divine simplicity. What he's doing in these videos is he's saying, look, let's not turn this into a, an, an issue of orthodoxy, uh, heterodoxy, orthodoxy, heresy, or, you know, let's not use those terms because we need to recognize that there's been a great deal of eclecticism throughout the tradition and and so we need to we need to understand um, that that we can't you know stick our flag in in this particular understanding of divine simplicity because that's that would be unwarranted both biblically and historically or so that's 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 his con contention it seems to be if I could regurgitate uh, his concern here um, and replicate his his concern that's that's how I would how I would sum it up. The issue, and, and what I want to do is I want to respond to his use of Basil because he's, Dr. White is appealing now to the Eastern tradition to try and show that, look, they're, they're, those guys over in the East had a different understanding of divine simplicity. And what I want to do here is I want to show that that's not true. And I want to go back to the letter 
that Dr. James White uses from Basil. And I want to try and show that um, his, first of all, it's difficult to to interpret or to 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 understand and contextualize a letter that's being read, you know, in a video, um, because you can't see the punctuation, you 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 don't get the whole thing, and and so on and so forth. There's all sorts of difficulties. So, uh, I'm not necessarily saying that that Dr. James White misquoted Basil uh, or Basil, um, but but I don't think that Basil's point is coming through in the way that Dr. White would have liked for it to come through, uh, or I don't think that Dr. White's point, rather, is coming through in the way that he had intended it to come through. And as he was reading Basil, and as I go to letter 234, which is the letter he's reading from, I'm asking the question, why would he be going to this particular letter from this particular theologian in the East, who's actually regurgitating something Thomas you know, has also said, um, and it, not regurgitating, obviously, Basil's preceding Thomas, but, but, there's, but there's things going on in Basil that, that Thomas is actually picking up on, right? Thomas is doing his theology within the context of the thought of the Cappadocians. Um, he's doing his theology within the context of, uh, of you know, things like Pseudo-Dionysius and, and Augustine, and so he's not abstracted from these guys in any sense, and he's very aware of of what of what these guys uh, understood to be the case with regard to theology proper or the doctrine of God. And so what I want to do is I want to look at Basil. Uh, we'll take a brief look at Aquinas, um, but what I want to do is I want to actually fast forward up to Peter Van Maastricht because I really want to make this discussion about. Uh, a reformed understanding of the doctrine of God, uh, and kind of a um, a contextual historical uh, understanding of the language of our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, 1677, 1689. Um, and so I'm going to go from Basil. We'll take a quick glance at Thomas, just to see that that Thomas is is getting at the same stuff that that Basil's actually getting at in the very letter that, that, that Dr. White is quoting from. And also we'll, we'll go into the next letter because what I, what, I, what I fear happened in the dividing line is that Dr. White actually didn't go to letter 235, which would have helped further the audience's understanding of, of what Basil was actually getting at. So to, to summarize my point here in my, in my thesis, the thesis of this video, the, the very point, James, the, the point James White is trying to make is not the point Basil's making. And and he's trying to appropriate Basil uh, in order to show that, that, look, there's different views of divine simplicity and theology proper and all of that, when really Basil's actually not saying anything that deviates from my understanding or, or uh, you know, the, the confessional Baptist understanding of a doctrine of God, and he's not He's not deviating from, uh, he's not deviating from what we would understand to be a, a more medieval scholastic uh, understanding of divine simplicity. So, I'm not going to read the whole letter. James White read much of the letter. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to look at a couple of highlights, um, and what I want to 
to say right off the bat is Basil's letter 234 has everything to do with how we know God, all right, how the creature knows God, okay? And for Basil, we're not talking about, uh, you know, the time of, of Gregory Palamas in the 14th century. We're talking about years before that. Uh, for, for Basil, there's a distinction between God's essence and God's uh, operations. This is a classical distinction. Uh, this is a distinction that um, that Thomas would make. This is a distinction that Augustine makes. This is a distinction that plays heavily into a uh, a particular exegetical uh, approach called partitive exegesis that exists in Augustine and all throughout um, the corpus of of, of Christian uh, theology and and hermeneutical uh, philosophy. Um, and so uh, this is this is this is this is nothing new in Basil. This is nothing deviant in Basil. Um, this this distinction between between God's essence, God in Himself, and g- what God does. God's you might say God's works or the effects of the divine essence. Um, and the classical distinction has been put in terms of theologia or Theologia versus oikonomia, or theology versus economy. Uh, theology being a, a word referring to God in Himself, economy referring to what God effects, creation and everything in it, everything that's not God, right, is oikonomia. Um, and so, so this distinction has been made, uh, has been made both in East and West. Gregory Palamas. Uh, deviates in the 14th century, I think, from the uh, r- really up to that point kind of universal understanding of the essence energies distinction or or essence operations distinction made by the Eastern Fathers. Prior to that point, uh, by saying that the that the that the energies are uh, are eternal um, and they're really truly distinct from the divine essence. Um, and so, uh, but but I, I'm not saying that there's no possibility of synthesis there, or that Palamas was often left field and and heretical and all that. But I think there has to be a great deal of of analysis in that area, and I think it would be useful to to look further into that. Um, but I do think that Palamas kind of deviated. He was he was trying to defend a particular uh, brand of contemplative mystical theology, and and that's how he went about doing it. So, and he was arguing with a with a Western trained Eastern scholastic. Uh, Barlam, um, and it was a big controversy in the 14th century. And uh, for in terms of the East, uh, uh, Palamas's view kind of won out, and so that's been kind of the assumed conception of the essence energies distinction since that point in time uh, for the East. Um, so just know that that what Basil's talking about here in letter 234, he's 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 getting at how we as creatures know God. Okay, so that's that's his whole project, and he's interacting with uh, with um, some objectors in the letter, and he's doing the same thing in letter two thirty five as well. Um, the part that Doctor James White read, uh, one of the one of the places he starts in the letter is just you know it's it's kind of in the middle of the first paragraph, and it's 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 where Basil is interacting with with 
an interlocutor, he's interacting with a, 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 a potential objector or objection, um, and the objector says, but, and Basil, this is really easy to see when you, when you actually read the letter. If you, I have the, I have the, uh, uh, the version that uh, Eterna Press did, uh, they have this excellent set um, that you can find on Amazon. But if you just look up St. Basil or St. Basil on Amazon, Eterna Press, you'll, you'll see it. And, you'll see it, and this is St. Basil's collection. So um, that's, the, that's the particular rendering that I'm, I'm reading from. But, he says... God is simple, and every attribute that one enumerates of him as knowable is of his substance or of his essence. And then Basil says, but this is a sophism that involves countless absurdities. And in Dr. White's kind of explanation or commentary on this particular part of Basil's letter, almost made it sound like that what Basil is saying is that the simplicity that's mentioned by his interlocutor is the sophism is the is the absurd sophism um and it's when you read the letter as a whole that's not at all the case and in fact when you go to letter 235 you see that it can't be the case because there basil has discussion on god's simplicity and talks about the impossibility of, of dividing god into parts and all of this so um he the the, the absurdities this the sophism is the leveraging divine simplicity as a doctrine against a true knowledge of God. That's the sophism. So his interlocutor is trying to say, well, you can't, you can't really know God through his attributes, which we know through his effects, which we'll get to here in a moment. But you can't really know God through his attributes because his attributes are all one with his, with his simple essence. And so to know his attributes would be to know his simple essence. And you're contending that we can't know his simple essence because that's too great for us and too grand for us and too infinite for us. Um, and so Basil's responding to that and he's saying, that's a sophism, that's absurdity. You can't use or leverage the doctrine of divine simplicity against the true knowledge of God. And he goes on to explain why that's the case. And he says later on down the page or down the paragraph, actually toward the end of that same paragraph, he says, but we say that from his activities or from his operations, we know our God. That's how creatures know God. Creatures cannot know the divine essence in say, that is as God exists in himself, we, we cannot know that. Um, finitum non capax infinity. We want to talk about some of the things and some of the language that came out of the Reformation. That's one of them. Uh, finitum non capax infinity, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. If God is infinite, we cannot comprehend it. We cannot use language that would, that would comprehend or, or get its linguistic muscle arms around, around who God is in himself because he's infinite. He's not finite. And so Basil's contending here that you, we cannot know God in himself. This is the same thing that that Thomas is, is saying as well in volume one of the Summa Theologiae. He says, but we say from his, from his operations, we know our God, but his substance itself, we do not profess to approach. All right. In other words, we don't know the divine essence. We don't know its isness. We don't know what it is. All right. We, we know that it is, but we don't know what it is in and of itself. And this is going to get us to a discussion on a proper understanding of the divine attributes here in a moment. For his activities or his operations descend to us. In other words, that's what's revealed to us. But his substance remains 
inaccessible. And in this same dividing line, Dr. James White criticizes the, the classical simplicity guy for, for saying that, you know, all of God's attributes are one in him, um, and, and they're not truly really distinct in him. It's like white light going through a prism, and, and, and the pris it's the prism of revelation, and then they come out the other side, you know, split up in all different colors, and that's how we experience God's attributes. But really, in him, they're all the white light. They're all one, right? And that's exactly what Basil's saying here, that we don't, we don't know the simple, august, sublime divine essence in and of itself. Uh, we can't know a simple substance. You can't know a simple substance. The reason you can't know what a simple substance is in itself, like the divine essence, is because creatures are partitioned, made of parts. And not only that, but we live within the context of process and we think discursively. And when you think discursively in terms of process, you think from A to B to C to D to E. You don't know in a simple act like God knows in a simple act. And for that reason, you can't know God as he is in himself, a simple substance. That's what Basil's getting at. So since you can't know God in himself like that, God reveals himself to us through his effects. And through his effects, we perceive what we call the attributes. God's infinity, God's uh, graciousness, his love, his mercy, and all of this, right? And we enumerate that, we enumerate those attributes in our speaking. But we know God truly through those attributes. We'll get to Peter Van Maastricht here in a moment, who's a who is a, a, a post-Reformed guy, a Puritan. Richard Muller puts at the height of Reformed Orthodoxy, um, post-Reformed scholastic Orthodoxy. We'll look at him here in a moment. He's saying the same thing Basil says, and, and Thomas Aquinas is saying the same thing that Basil and Van Maastricht say. So there, there's no deviation here whatsoever. We'll see that here in a moment as we, as we progress through the letter. Dr. White read this part, but I'll read it again. It's, it, is, it is faith enough to know that God is, right? We know that he is. We don't know what he is. It says, and it is faith enough to know that God is, not what he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And again, he says, toward the end of this letter, he says, therefore, from his operations is the knowledge. That's how we know God. We know God through his effects. We know God through what God does. All right, so therefore, from his activities is the knowledge, and from the knowledge is the worship, okay? That's how creatures know God. Um, now, a quick note on how the attributes and the activities, or the operations, the effects of, uh, add extra effects of, of the Godhead, how those two things relate to one another. Um, you say, well, you know, the attributes are the activities of God. Well, in a sense, that's true. So when we, when we talk about love, when we talk about um, glory, holiness, righteousness, all the things that we would list out, you know, and apply to God in terms of his attributes, all those things are, 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 are creaturely things that we have experience with that we apply back onto the divine essence in an, in an improper mode of speaking. It's not, it's not wrong, it's improper. It's improper because these terms do not comprehend univocally what God is in and of himself. But we are limited to speak this way about him. And Basil's whole point is, to his interlocutor, to his opponent, his opponent's wanting to say, well, because you can't approach unto the divine essence of God 
directly and, and, and comprehend it. You can't know God at all. And Basil's saying, no, we can know God. We know God through his effects in a way, in a particular way. There are different species of knowledge and different ways of knowing. And, and there's a particular way in which we know God, right? But we don't know God comprehensively. We don't know God univocally. What, what Thomas would, would later on declare, we know God analogically. That's, that's the way in which we know and speak and think about God. Moving on to letter, letter 235. I'm, I'm just going to read the whole first paragraph here. This is letter 235. It's, it's to the same in reply to another question. So it's still the same topic, generally speaking, and it's, and it's a, a specific, specifically different question that he's addressing here. Which is first, knowledge or faith? But we say that generally, in the sciences, faith goes before knowledge. But in our own teaching, even if someone says that knowledge must exist before faith, we do not disagree. Knowledge, however, commensurate with human comprehension. For in the sciences, and notice he, he distinguishes the sciences. This is something that Dr. Jeff Johnson does not do in his book. He reduces all the sciences down to the natural science and says, well, well, Thomas is wanting to know God according to, the nat according to natural science, according to science, right? And he uses that term in the singular as if there's not a, a tree of sciences, right? Which is how the medievals and the, and the, and the, and the pre-medievals even would have understood the sciences, right? So, so Basil is using the, the plural here because he understands that the sciences are, are, are manifold. For in the sciences, one must first take it on faith that the letter spoken is alpha and later having learned the characters and their pronunciations, grasp also the exact notion of the force of such letter. But in faith uh, but in faith in God, the notion of the existence of God precedes, and this notion we gather from his works. Okay, so how do you know God? You know God through his works. All right, we're getting into the natural theology thing here. For it is by perceiving his wisdom and power and goodness and all his invisible qualities... And this is how the attributes relate to his activities or his works. Where was I? For it is by perceiving his wisdom and power and goodness and all his invisible qualities as shown in the creation of the universe. So in other words, the, the attributes that we as creatures apply back to God, these are things that have been revealed to us through his creation. They're mediated to us through creature. All right, And then we improperly apply them back onto God. This is why, you know, you, you read someone who who talks a lot about analogical language and 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 the the mode of, of knowledge that that entails. Um when we talk when we say something like God is love, what we're saying is there's something in God like what we know to be love, right? We have creaturely experience of what love is, right? All of our experience is creaturely right and 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 we and we have creaturely experience of what something like love is right we see it in human relationships right we see it in and throughout the world um we see it in in the lord jesus christ god incarnate who came to love his church in giving himself up for her um so we we have you know creaturely perception of love and we say that God is love. But really what we're saying when we say that is we're saying that there's something in God that's like what we know to be love. But see, we only have finite experience of what love is. And so in God, love is maximal, infinite, 
and the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. So we, we apply the term love to the divine essence analogically. It's not univocally because when we say there's, there's love in God, we're definitely not saying there's creaturely love in God. We're not saying there's finite love in God yet. That's the only kind of love we have experience with is, is a creaturely kind of love, albeit that, that kind of love perfected in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's the only kind of, that's the only kind of love we have experience with. And, and we, 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 we take that understanding of love and we, and we use it to think and speak about God. It's analogical predication. All right. Um, and so that's how, that's how, when we're talking about God revealing himself through the creation, it's not immediate, right? If it was immediate, we would have direct comprehension and, and, and univocal association between ourselves and the divine, between ourselves and, and the divine essence, which is infinite. So it's, it's mediated through creation, just like Romans 1 says, that it's through the things that have been made, right, that we know God. And this, this mediated knowledge of God or this, 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 this revelation of God's nature through creation refracts to us his attributes, in, in, in manifold fashions. So we have multiple attributes that we, that we can enumerate, right? And, and we're, we're bound to think about God like that because we think discursively, we think in terms of process, we think finitely, right? So, so uh, the, the attributes of God are, are what is revealed of God through his creation, all right? So we know, we know God shown, we know God, his attributes, shown in the creation of the universe. Um, and uh, he says, for it is by perceiving his wisdom and power and goodness and all his invisible qualities as shown in the creation of the universe that we come to a recognition of him. Thus, we also accept him as our Lord. For since God is maker of the whole universe and we are part of the universe, God is therefore our maker also. And faith follows this knowledge and worship follows such faith. <clears throat> Another place I want to read in letter 235, sorry, excuse me, is the part where he affirms divine simplicity. And he affirms the, 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 the classical, what has come to be known as the classical doctrine of divine simplicity. He says, for let them explain to us in what sense Paul said, now we know in part. Does he mean that we know his substance in part, just as we know parts of his substance? But that is absurd, he says, for God is indivisible into parts. It means that in, in terms of who God is in himself, he cannot be divided. He's indivisible. He cannot be divided in parts. So we cannot understand God's attributes as existing as distinct, really, truly distinct attributes, things, properties in God, which would allow us to divide God in say. We can't do that. And, and Basil here plainly declares that, that God in himself is indivisible, right? And, um, and so we cannot have an understanding of God that would, that would imply a division in essence, any kind of a division in essence, a partition in essence. Um, and so that, that leads us to have this current understanding that Basil's presenting here uh, in terms of the divine attributes, that when we talk about the divine attributes, when we talk about God's attributes, we're talking about what God and how God has revealed concerning himself through the created world and in scripture, right? Which scripture itself is creature, 
It's an effect of the divine essence, right? And so God is lisping to us, as it were, in the pages of Scripture. He is revealing himself to us truly and accurately, but he's revealing himself to us in ways that we can understand, all right? No one has seen God at any time, right? And, and, and by that is meant God has not been perceived in terms of his divine essence, comprehended in all of that. Rather, God has revealed himself to us in ways that we can understand. This sets us up for a glorious doctrine of the incarnation. Because part of the, 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 the work that the incarnation does, the doctrine of the incarnation does, is it shows us that God has revealed himself to us in a particular and very special way in the incarnate person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, uh, that there would have been no way for God to reveal himself uh, to us to that extent if he did not take upon himself a human nature. So God takes upon himself a human nature to reveal himself to us in the greatest way he could possibly reveal himself to us. And what that tells me is that if we are to know God at all, we must know him in a creaturely mode. Otherwise, part of the legwork the incarnate the doctrine of the incarnation does is is totally superfluous. Um, you know, we, we see in Hebrews 1 that that Jesus Christ incarnate is the apex of God's revelation to us. It's the apex of God's revelation to us. And all this business of saying that, well, no, you know, we, we, we can know God directly and immediately uh, in terms of, of, of a kind of, you know, direct knowledge of his divine essence, not mediated through creation, but immediate in us. Uh, all of that neglects the very significance, part of the very significance of the incarnation. That God would indeed declare the incarnate Christ, the apex of divine revelation, I think, is, is understanding the divine essence this way, in Basil's way, that it's not approachable by finite creatures, that we must know God through his effects, and that's how we enumerate the divine attributes, is through the effects of God, that as we know him through creation, that's where the enumeration of divine attributes comes from, knowing in a creaturely mode, right? That sets us up for understanding the incarnation in a more glorious manner. Okay, I want to move from this, uh, this, this, these two Basil letters. I want to move from this to uh, something that Thomas Aquinas says, which I think is important because he's just echoing what Basil's already said. In a lengthy discussion, it's question 12 of Summa Theologiae, 12th article. Uh, so it's within the context of, of how do we know, how do we as creatures know God? Again, he's, he's, he's trying to answer the same questions that, that Basil was wrestling with, and he's doing so uh, in the earliest, one of the earliest portions of, of volume one of the Summa Theologiae. And Thomas says here, God is known by natural knowledge through the images of his effects. All right. And, and what he means there, to sum that up, creatures know God through what God has made. All right. And, and he hasn't reached at that point to, into, you know, uh, special theology, supernatural theology, which comes alone through the scriptures, which he himself declares to be the case. Uh, he's just saying that knowledge, knowledge of God comes through what God does, right? It's not directly or immediately derived from the divine essence, which, which could imply some pantheism, I think. Uh, rather, it's mediated through God's works. And because it's mediated through God's manifold works, right, we have an enumeration of attributes that we go 
that we've derived through creation, whether it's it's the book of nature or the book of scripture, and we go and we apply those back onto the divine essence. So it's the only way we can talk about God. It's analogical predication, not univocal predication. It's also not equivocal predication because it does convey true things about God. It's not something totally different um, and, and abstracted from, from God altogether. We do, as Basil says, and as Aquinas says time and time again, have true knowledge of God. But we have to understand that it's analogical because it's had through God's works. It's not had directly through God's essence. All right. Um, I want to show how, how Peter Van Maastricht, who's a, a, a post-reformed Puritan, Dutch Puritan, says the very same thing that we've just observed here in Basel and Aquinas. He says this, and this is on the attributes of God in general. It's in volume two, Theoretical Practical Theology. He says, first, the essence of God as it is in itself, he's regurgitating Basil here, is entirely invisible and imperceptible inasmuch as it is said that the face of God cannot be seen. So he's saying, we have no direct approach unto the divine essence. And then he says this, Yet, meanwhile, that same essence is in some way made known from its attributes and properties, insofar as by them God shows Moses, as it were, his posterior parts. His posterior parts meaning his backside, right? In his glory, goodness, mercy, and righteousness. All right, he's enumerating attributes there. To this end, the divine attributes are amassed throughout the sacred scriptures. He's quoting Exodus, citing Exodus 34, 5 through 6, Nehemiah 9, 5 and 17, Psalm 103, 8, Jeremiah 32, 17 through 19, 1 Timothy 1, 17, chapter 6, verses 15 through 16, etc., he says. And then he goes on to say, after somewhat of a lengthy discussion, he says, thus this hodgepodge of attributes, this enumeration of attributes, arises not so much from God's perfection as from our imperfection, right? So he's saying, we're limited to speaking in these uh, enumerative terms, this hodgepodge of attributes, he says. Namely, when from these things, which we see belong to creatures, so God's works, we attribute certain ones to God, love, mercy, glory, holiness, wisdom, knowledge. We attribute certain ones to God. We remove others from him. That's uh, remotion, uh, apophatic uh, theology, removing imperfections from God, and only speaking positively, analogically. Then, from the things attributed, we remove all imperfection, which in creatures customarily adheres to them, because in the most perfect one, imperfection does not occur. And finally, in the remaining things attributed, we add the infinite preeminence that belongs to him by reason of the infinity of his essence. And this, at last, is the way to investigate the divine attributes. He also says, therefore, so that we may more exactly understand their nature and character, the attributes, above all this must be laid as a foundation. Here's what he says. All the attributes together in God are nothing as they exist in the divine essence. All the attributes together in God are nothing but one certain most simple and most pure act, his very essence and his infinite perfection. For number one, in the absolutely first being, there cannot occur one thing and another through composition because that would require one who composed those things, who was prior to the absolutely first being. Also, two, it cannot occur in an infinite being. For if one thing and another did occur, both things would be either infinite or finite. Not infinite, 
because plural infinities involve an infinite contradiction, nor finite because the infinite things or the infinite thing cannot coalesce from plural finite things. In addition, number three, it cannot occur in an, in an immutable and incorruptible being. For when a thing is composed with another, then the one thing can also be separated from the other, implying potentiality in God, which would imply mutability, not immutability. And thus the thing can be changed and corrupted. Okay, so that's a, that's, and that's just run-of-the-mill Puritan. You can look for yourself. Look in Thomas Watson. You can look in John Owen. Francis Turretin, there's nothing novel or particularly Thomistic in Peter Van Maastricht. He's Stephen Charnock. Uh, this is universal among the Puritan divines, uh, that kind of language is. And, um, and yes, they, they quote from Thomas. They use Thomas, but they're also using Augustine. They're also using, you know, several other, you know, theologians to confirm their interpretation not only of natural theology, but special theology, supernatural theology, scripture, right? And one of the things that, that is, is, is grievous to me is that this conversation, uh, we've been accused, and even some of these Puritans, I would imagine, have been accused of neglecting sola scriptura, and they've been accused of using, you know, people like Thomas, you know, or Augustine, or uh, Dionysius, or, you know, even Aristotle or Plato as authorities that are equal to Scripture, and that's simply not what they're doing. One of the things that I, I have to say before I jump off of here is we confess sola scriptura, and we confess the sufficiency of Scripture for faith and life. The question is, what, what, are, what is Scripture sufficient for, number one? It doesn't, Scripture doesn't teach the laws of logic. Scripture, you know, right? Scripture doesn't, Scripture doesn't by itself um, ensure you, your confession of sola scriptura and the sufficiency of Scripture does nothing to ensure the infallibility and inerrancy of your interpretation. So why do we use commentators? Why do we use theologians who live throughout the history of the church? Why do we invoke them? Why do we do theology within the context of history, with not only within co the context of the local church, but in the context of, you know, what, what, what Ignatius might call the church Catholic. Why, why, do we do, why do we do theology in concert with other theologians? And the reason is, is because while we confess Scripture to be sufficient, we confess ourselves to be insufficient, right? We are insufficient, and we must rely on the Holy Spirit, to understand what the scripture says, right? And just because we rely on the Holy Spirit to understand what the scripture says doesn't mean the scripture is insufficient, right? It just means that it's sufficient for a particular purpose. We still must have the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit must guide us into the truth. The Holy Spirit speaks through the word of God, through scripture. And that's why we say that scripture interprets scripture. So one part, a clearer part of scripture informs a less clear part of scripture. But also we understand that Jesus promised to build his church, that the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. We understand that the spirit does work in and amongst the people of God. No one man is infallible. No one man is inerrant. No one group of people are infallible or inerrant. But if we look 
at the whole concert, right? At, at, the, at the majority report in terms of the work of the church, in terms of their understanding of Scripture, in terms of the work of, of saints throughout history, we can get a better idea of how Christians have interpreted Scripture in the past, and we can be corrected by them. Right? We can be taught by them. Proverbs tells us over and over and over again to seek advice. And those who shut their ears to, to sound advice of others, and those who remove landmarks that have been put there by their fathers, are unwise. And so we confess sola scriptura, we confess the sufficiency of scripture, but we also confess our insufficiency, and we recognize our need as individual Bible readers, our need for help, Right? We rely on the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit has spoken in Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture, an analogy of faith there. Uh, and we also rely on the Spirit as the Spirit has done work through the people of God over the last 2,000 years, right? Over the last 2,000 years. And, um, and so we have Scripture informing the church, and we have the church informing our understanding, not informing Scripture, but informing our understanding of Scripture, helping us to be better Bible interpreters. That's why we have seminary professors, right? Seminary professors, that's why we have pastors, right? We have men who live alongside us right now who help us to better understand the text of Scripture. And all we do when we look at history is we're looking at men who, who we're doing the same thing that we do in the seminary classroom. We're doing the same thing that we do within the context of the local church, sitting under the preaching of the Word. We're just looking at, at other pastors and theologians who've gone before us to say, hmm, how did, how did they interpret Hebrews 1.5? How did they understand the, the, the New Testament use of the Old Testament? How did they understand the implications of Deuteronomy 6.4? How did they understand the implications of Malachi 3.6? And so on and so forth. So with that being said, if this was a helpful program, and I, and I hope that it, it was, please click the subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. For those who, who I disagree with, for those who, who disagree with me on this issue, um, I love you. And I, I hope to see this conversation um, improve. I hope to see it progress. And um, I hope... I hope that we all understand that we are all liable to heterodoxy and that when, 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 when it's shown to be the case that we have departed from the beaten path, that we can, you know, make the correction and we can, we can get back on the, on the path, right? And, and, and that, that sometimes takes a lot of conversation. Sometimes it takes more than one year. It takes two years, three years. It's a process, right? We're, we're creatures and we're in this conversation together and, and let's just pray to God that it, it would be productive and useful. Um, so I say that to, to Dr. James White. I say it to, to others that are, are, are watching his program and watching this program and trying to figure out where to go and where to land. There's, there's a lot of study to be done here, historically, biblically, systematically. And, and we should be humble and plow through it. Humble and disciplined humbly disciplined. All right. So God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.